Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Did you know that you can claim CME credits for many of the TMA Practice Well podcast episodes? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash CME to go. That's www.texmed.org forward slash CME. T-O-G-O, to register for your episode and follow the instructions to claim CME. Policies and standards at the Texas Medical Association, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, and the American Medical Association require that speakers and planners for continuing medical education activities disclose any relevant financial relationship they may have with commercial entities whose products devices, or services may be discussed in the context at the CME activity. The planners and speakers for this program have nothing to disclose. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this program should not be used or referred to as primary legal sources and does not replace the advice of your healthcare attorney nor should the information and opinions presented as part of this program be construed as establishing medical standards of care for the purposes of litigation, including expert testimony. The standard of care is dependent upon the particular facts and circumstances of each individual case, and no generalization can be made that would apply in all cases. Hi, I'm Cheryl Kreviak. I manage the TMA Education Center and produce the TMA Practice Well podcast. And this is Ask the Expert, where you send in your questions and TMA expert staff and guests provide answers. This episode is moderated by Sylvia Salazar, AVP of Membership and Leadership Development. Hello. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Ask the Expert is a virtual series to bring members direct access to professional experts who can answer questions on legal, practice management, advocacy, and regulatory topics. Today's Ask the Expert is Myths of Medical Records, presented by Kelly Flanagan, TMA Associate General Counsel, and Beverly Chilton, TMA Practice Management Associate. So we're going to start today with Kelly Flanagan. Kelly, what are you hearing on this topic? Good morning, everyone. I'm an attorney, um, but I'm not your attorney. I'll be providing general information only. And for personal matters, you should contact and retain a legal counsel. All right. I think one of the topics that I'm hearing most about these days uh, relates to the information blocking provisions that went into effect in April of 2021. These regulations changed the timing of the release of medical records, and it's not quite as clear as what it used to be. There are multiple laws in place, federal and state, that impact when medical records have to be released. And to be in compliance with all laws, your uh, physician will want to meet the most stringent requirement. And 
that previously used to be state law, which required records upon a request with a valid proper consent be released within 15 business days, um, which was shorter than the 30-day HIPAA timeline. Um, So the 15 business day was kind of uh, the measuring stick. But now with information blocking, federal law provides that just simply complying with your state guidelines um, is not necessarily sufficient. If a physician could have more promptly released the medical records, again, presuming there's a valid consent in place to release the records, if they could have more promptly done so and instead chose to engage in a practice that delays the release of the records, the Office of National Coordinator has said that that could be information blocking which is concerning because it doesn't it no longer provides a definitive timeline where you know that you are protected and have not engaged in information blocking. And as a real example that has kind of stood out, I think, among the examples of information blocking that the ONC has provided is that the ONC has said, for instance, for a patient portal, um, which are not required, but many physicians have them in their practices, if the information is available to the physician and there's any delay in making that information available on the patient portal, then that could be deemed information blocking. Um, Even a delay for the physician to first have the time to review the results. So there's been a lot of concern, I think, and and, um, education too, with regard to the time limit for releasing medical records. Um, So that's a big one. Thank you, Kelly. So Beverly, um, what are other common questions you're hearing? Well, one of the things that we get questioned on is, for instance, can another person pick up a patient's prescription? The answer to that is yes, HIPAA does allow that. You know, there are times when prescriptions or imaging or medical supplies need to be picked up and the patient is not physically able to pick them up. So yes, they can be picked up, but most likely they will be asked for the patient's date of birth. So that, that's one of the things that we get a, a common questions on. Thank you. Kelly, um, what about access to medical records for deceased persons? Yeah, so unless there's litigation involved, uh, the person who's authorized to consent to release of medical records would be the deceased person's personal representative, as that term is defined in the Texas estate codes. Um, This would include someone who can show letters testamentary or letters of administration with regard to the will or evidence that they're otherwise involved in informal probate or small estates, such as affidavits of heirship. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, Beverly, I know that some still leave patient charts outside of exam rooms. Is this still permissible? Yes, it is. The privacy rule does allow this, but you want to take reasonable and appropriate measures to protect the patient's privacy. For example, you put a folder in those clear uh, envelopes that are outside the door. You want to make sure there's no writing on the folder and don't put any labels on the folder. Uh, Usually it's just a temporary file that says got a a test result in it that the the doctor, uh, maybe it's not yet entered in the EMR system. So take the appropriate measures to uh, safeguard the patient. This is Heather Betridge and I work in practice management services as well. And if you do have labels, it's okay. Just make sure that the, the labels are facing the wall 
rather than facing outwards in the hallway where people who are passing by can see it. So um, just make sure it's facing the wall. Thank you for that additional information, Heather. Um, what about paper charts? What is required to dispose of PHI, Beverly? Yes, so there, there are still paper charts out there and you wanna make sure that when you need to dispose of them, that they're shredded or, or they could be burned or they could be pulverized. But the main thing you wanna watch is that the records are essentially unreadable. And the same thing with say electronic records. You want to make sure that there you've used software to overwrite the information. And uh, again, so that it's just not readable. And again, you can disintegrate them, you can pulverize them, you can melt them or shred them if they're able to do that. Thank you. What needs to be documented in a chart for pediatric patient if another relative brings child and consent to changes in medication or other treatment? Uh, well, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know the, the response to that one off the top of my head. Um, I mean, first, I uh, would have to make sure that this person is someone who can consent on behalf of the child. And then it would just go to the requirements of the medical records themselves, um, the contents of the medical records. The board does require the medication and treatment to be noted, but I can perhaps pull up the levels of consent for minors so Kelly, I know a frequent question we get through the TMA Knowledge Center is about fees. And, you know, there's always been, I think, in most practices, something in place for fees with regards to paper copies. But what about electronic records? Okay, sure. So first of all, I'll just say there's multiple federal and state laws that address fees. Overall, you can charge for copies of medical records in many situations. There are some exceptions that apply, and these exceptions apply whether it's paper or electronic. You cannot charge if requested by a U.S. or Canadian physician for emergency or acute medical care. Cannot charge for records to support disability-related benefits applications. There are certain workers' comps claims where records are required. You cannot charge in those situations. And then under information blocking, um, to avoid information blocking, you cannot charge for electronic access. And that's a defined term, which means internet-based access that makes the electronic health information available at the time of the request without manual effort um, to fulfill the request. So what we're talking about really is like a, a portal where it's um, there's not a person on the other end like, okay, they just requested this. It's something that's ha happening through the technology. So cannot without risk of information blocking, charge a fee in that situation. Otherwise, the fees, um, we know the cap on them would be the Texas Medical Board limits. And let me pull those up. It is um, for electronic format. It is no more than $25 for 500 pages or fewer and $50 for more than 500 pages. Um, but these are maximums. If a different amount, a lesser amount would be reasonable and cost-based, that would be the amount that would be appropriate. You cannot charge for the searching, the time spent searching for and retrieving the records. It's um, just based on the copying and related labor itself and the supplies to create a copy. Maybe they want a flash drive or something or the postage. Additionally, I'll just note that hospitals have a different fee chart. Um, so it's tied to 
basically inflation and it changes and is published annually. Um, but it's different than the physician Texas Medical Board limits. And then also I would know under information blocking, whenever you're charging a fee, um, there's several conditions that have to be met to avoid information blocking, including not charging for electronic access. And that includes that you're, you've established the fee based on objective and verifiable criteria, and that you're applying it in the same manner to similarly based persons and requests. Um, so you could not make a distinction between this person's a competitor. So I'm going to offer it, you know, this lesser amount to these other people, but not to this person. So those are just some kind of more recent uh, regulations that can impact fees. Thank you, Kelly. Let's see. Beverly, does HIPAA prohibit the use, disclosure, or request of an entire medical record? No, it doesn't. If you uh, determine that you need to request and review a patient's medical record, say, from their cardiologist in order for the doctor to have guidelines for rendering his medical decision-making, you may. And a covered entity may use, disclose, or request an entire medical record without a case-by-case justification. But you want to make certain that your policies and procedures, that it's documented, that the patient's entire medical record is reasonably necessary for whatever purpose that you're requesting it. Thank you for that information. And if I could take a moment, can I go back to the question about a minor um, coming in with someone other than their parent? So the other people who can consent for medical treatment are children in circumstances where a parent cannot be located. And these are some exceptions for that situation. It says a grandparent, and this is from the Texas Family Code, a grandparent, an adult brother or sister, an adult aunt or uncle, any education institution in which the minor is enrolled and has written authorization from persons having the power to consent, and any adult who has actual care, control, and position of the minor and has written authorization to consent from the parent can provide that consent when are in those situations. So it says when a non-parent gives consent for treatment, the consent must be in writing, include the name of the child, include the name of of one or both parents, if known, and the name of any managing conservator of the child. It must include the name of the person giving consent and that person's relationship to the child, include a statement of the nature of the medical treatment to be given and the date the treatment is to begin. And I know I went through that fast. Let me, this, the site for that is Texas Family Code, section 32.002. Perfect. And TMA does have a variety of white papers on various topics. I recommend that you look through those as well. They're very helpful resources um, for physician practices. Yeah, absolutely. On the topic of medical records, we have, I'll just just say a main one that covers, it's the longest one and it has a lot, but then there's some more specific ones like retention of medical records or subpoenas and medical records. Um, The White paper on minors and consent doesn't mention records, but it addresses records in the manner I just shared. But there's a lot of good stuff in TMA white papers. We've got about 10 minutes left. So if there are any other pressing questions you have. Well, I can speak to a a common misconception that I hear, and that is what pertains to protected health information or PHI. Many people believe that PHI is just the diagnosis or the test results or the actual medical or health information. But 
It's not. It includes things like the patient's street address or phone number or automobile license number. So it's information that is individually identifiable and connects a patient to his or her health information. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, the key is whether that information is connecting it to the health information. I can throw out another common question. Please do. Okay. um, Sometimes we hear questions about parental access in the case of divorce. So under Texas law, unless limited by court order, um, both parents have access and can consent to the release of the records of their child. Um, And this is regardless of whether they're the managing conservator or the possessory conservator, which is formerly known as custodial, non-consodial parent. But again, they both have the ability to access and to uh, grant consent to access to medical records unless a court order states something differently, in in which case uh, that parent's court order would have that information. Good to know. What else haven't we covered? Beverly or Kelly, is there anything else that comes up frequently that we haven't discussed? Well, Um, I'd like to speak to the minimum uh, minimum necessary requirement, I think this, particularly with practice managers, might be helpful. The privacy rule requires that a covered entity, a practice, make reasonable efforts to limit the use and disclosure of and the request for protected health information to the minimum necessary to accomplish whatever that intended purpose is. So I'll give you an example medical assistants. Frequently, medical assistants are moved from their back office position of rooming the patients and such, and come lunchtime, they have to cover at the front desk. So their roles change. And if the uh, EHR system is going to be accessed by the medical assistant, of course, in the back, but what about in the front when they're collecting a copay or any other point of service payment, then they're going to need access to the billing section of the chart. So we encourage you to review your MAs and anyone else who might be working in cross roles to look at their job descriptions and make sure you're spot on with the fact that they have the right to access that that information And then that gives them the ability to do their job fully. Most EHRs have an area within the software that you can give permissive rights. And so you can just go in, as Beverly was mentioning, that say, yes, this staff member with this login can access these areas in order to complete their jobs on a daily basis. And of course, you know, you're going to run into one ops where they might need it today Um, because they're filling in or someone called in sick and they're playing dual roles. And those you can perhaps give them access for just the day and then remove it because in the course of their normal job, they don't need access to it. So it's just, you know, keeping that awareness of what do they need to get the job done? And if they don't need it anymore, then remove it. That's helpful information. Thank you. Who's responsible for payment in the case of the divorced parent taking the child in? the parent that takes the child in? Um, And I don't know that there's a clear answer on that. It could be determined by court order, custody agreement. I don't really have a general answer. It's going to be specific to the situation, but also, you know, they might be obligated by the paperwork they sign with the physician as well. 
Kelly, when I asked earlier about if there was anything else that we hadn't covered that we're getting, we get frequent questions about, were you going to say something else? I may have cut you off. Oh, no, you didn't cut me off. Um, I was just going to talk about uh, the notifications that are required when a physician leaves a practice. So when a physician retires, terminates employment, or otherwise leaves a practice, that physician is responsible for providing certain notices, particularly that the patients receive reasonable notification and are given opportunity to obtain copies of their records or arrange for the transfer of their medical records to another physician and notifying the Texas Medical Board and specifying who's going to have have the records, the custodian. And the question we get sometime is um, where the physician is leaving a practice group, who's responsible for that notice? And it it is the responsibility of the physician who is leaving. So even if the group agrees to send the letters, that's not something that the leaving physician has to agree to because they do remain responsible. So if the group fails to send the letters or does so in a negligent manner, somehow the physician could face consequences. So in those situations, well, TMB rules also do prohibit interference by the group practice from interfering with the physician from fulfilling their responsibilities. A group practice would risk consequences with the board if they did not provide the physician the information they need to provide those notices to the patients. So sometimes there's some tension in those situations, um, but that's what the law says with regard to the notices. Thank you. Great reminder. Beverly or Kelly, any last words? I could do one more if if there's time. Sure, we'll take it. Um, So related to retention requirements for medical records. So this is another area. Multiple laws are in place, um, but I can kind of give you a high level. So under state law, the Texas Medical Board requires physicians to keep records um, for seven years after the date of the last treatment. Or for a minor, it would be the longer of either when they turn 21 or seven years after the date of the last treatment. However, there are lots of federal programs or other laws that can change those requirements. One of the ones that more notable ones that has a longer time period is, well, hospitals have their own time period and it's 10 years after the date of treatment or for minor, the longer of age 18 or 10 years after the date of treatment. And then it's additionally prudent for Medicare and Medicaid providers to maintain their records for a minimum of 10 years so that they can defend themselves against False Claims Act's uh, whistleblower cases. And this was something that came up in a 2019 U.S. Supreme Court case where it became apparent that claims could be brought that late. Whereas before, well, the Medicare requirements state that they only have to uh, seven years from date of service. However, in light of the fact that a claim could be brought against you, a whistleblower claim under the False Claims Act, it may be prudent for a provider to mitigate risk and keep it that 10-year period. And that's not all the retention laws, but that's kind of the ones that have the longer time period. Thank you, Kelly. Great information. Um, Thank you, Beverly. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Heather, for your input today. And this will conclude today's Ask the Expert program. As a reminder, you can visit textmed.org forward slash Ask the Expert to find upcoming Ask the Expert dates, resource links on these topics, and podcast recordings of prior Ask the Expert events. Thanks again for joining us today, and thank you for your membership. We hope you take away practical tips you can start using today. Check the episode description for the link to claim CME. Remember to like and follow the TMA Practice Well podcast 
so you get every episode. Until next time, stay well.